You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Uh, we have the extraordinary privilege today of being able to interview an individual who has been involved in dealing with the terrorism and terrorist activities, counterterrorism and so forth, over the past almost 30 years now. Malcolm Nance, a name some of you may know from our, he has spoken here on two occasions. He's written uh, three books, including one called An End to Al-Qaeda. Uh, he is highly experienced spent some uh, 26 years in naval intelligence, and he is considered uh, a counterterrorism and terrorism uh, expert. And as such, he's a consultant and has been to uh, Special Operations Command, Department of Homeland Security, and a, n a number of the U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, he has served uh, in his consulting capacity and in his active duty capacity in both the Balkans, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the Middle East, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And in, 19, in 2001, uh, following the, uh, uh, the events of 9-11, he formed Special Readiness Services International, his own consulting uh, company, and uh, began consulting with the Special uh, Operating Forces. So that said, um, I have uh, Malcolm on the line. I wonder, Malcolm, could you just give us a sense of where you are and uh, what you're concerned with right now. Well, it's great to be here, Peter. Uh, as you know, I love the Spy Museum and, uh, and uh, your wonderful staff and your absolutely fantastic bookstore, one of the best in the world, I think. Uh, and uh, right now, I'm presently in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I work between the United States, the United Arab Emirates, and then out to other countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, and right now, mm -hmm. North and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so the operations that I generally support uh, these days are consulting uh, with regards to Middle Eastern countries. I uh, presently formed and uh, was asked to form a uh, United Arab Emirates consulting company, which does business almost strictly with uh, other Arab nations. And usually I'm usually the only American in the organization, particularly, I mean, my operations in Iraq. Uh, that was almost exclusively all Iraqi, and uh, I was, as an Arabic-speaking American, uh, that's where my role in that. Same here in the UAE. Okay. Well, it sounds like you're, you've got uh, plenty of work on your table. 
Let's begin. I think the best way to begin would be discussing what is on the front pages and what people are talking about. And obviously, uh, that's the extraordinary intelligence success of identifying uh, Osama bin Laden's location and the special forces undertaking to kill or capture him, which was carried out. What is your sense of the significance of this uh, for both those in al-Qaeda as well as those affected by it, such as al-Taliban and the Arab public at large? Well, I think, uh, you know, and this will be contrary to many people in the community, but I just think this is momentous. I think that we are on the cusp of seriously damaging the al-Qaeda organization in a way that it will never recover. Osama bin Laden is the ideological creator of al-Qaeda. Contrary to what many people say, and this is where a lot of, you know, bigotry, falsehoods, uh, personal political ideology comes into it, and, and it really has no part in our intelligence process when people say, we're fighting the Islamic world. Well, I live in the Islamic world. My entire career I've worked uh, in or around the Muslim world. I operate as a Muslim when I have to. And you, there, we are not fighting the Muslim world. Islam is not what we are fighting here. The people that we're fighting claim to be Muslims, claim to be operating uh, in support of what they believe is Islam. But if you break down al-Qaeda's ideology, and in my entire book, I think I have six chapters in my book and into al-Qaeda, where I make it very clear that their ideology is phenomenally corrupt. And they believe that traditional Islam shouldn't exist as it exists at all. Uh, and so killing bin Laden kills his ideal idea it kills his dream and uh i don't think that anyone in the organization at all has the capacity to fill his boots well let me just uh, pick up on that uh and let me remind our listeners by the way that you and i are communicating by skype i'm sitting here in the spy museum in washington dc and you from your uh, what you've said are uh, in the emirates uh in the middle east um i take your point about the momentous significance of bin Laden's having been killed. But everything we read about al-Qaeda, and when I say what we read, not classified information, but what the media and, and the books have told us, and many of them are very well informed, is that mm -hmm. one, of the significant, one of the phenomena of al-Qaeda is when one person's killed, another steps in to take the place. Now, mm -hmm. no one has been identified with the charisma to replace bin Laden, let alone uh, Zawahari, his deputy. But wouldn't you expect that the movement itself, do you think it has the resilience to, to form around the absence of bin Laden and to continue to be a threat to the United States and to the Arab countries? Well, I think that, that all of that's true in some capacity. I mean, we have not destroyed the entire global capability of the Al-Qaeda organization. But we have destroyed the person that created the, the heart, the image, the soul, the, the glue that holds al-Qaeda together. It wasn't just bin Laden's charisma. It was, he created the ideology of, of what I call the itinerant Islamic night, where they would go around and go to these battlefields from Chechnya to Bosnia to, uh, to, to Yemen and Somalia, and they would create what, what we've determined to be called jihad zones. Uh, under al-Qaeda's doctrine. And these jihad zones would have their little emirs in each one of these 
places, which would essentially be a regional or local commander. But all of these people believe in something. Uh, they believe in this philosophy that we refer to as bin Ladenism. Now, the Saudis like to refer to it as takfirism, which is the belief that a Muslim, in with, or not a Muslim, but an Al-Qaeda member is, has the cultish capability of declaring any Muslim a kafir. And so they call them, the, the, the Arabs who hate them call them takfiris, which is a derogatory term. Uh, we, so you'll sometimes hear people call them salafis, which is, means that they want to go back to the roots of the original companions of the Prophet Muhammad, which is returning to the salaf. Uh, the Saudis and others refer to them as neo-Salafists, and I believe that, that to be their ideology. So that organization, once you've, that glue really keeps each one of these guys together as sort of a brother. And as these brothers all stick together, they hold together fine. Once they're in the organization, it's very hard to pry them out. But it's a question of how that interacts with the Muslim world. And so by killing bin Laden, we have a, a golden opportunity because he seemed to speak for the Muslim world. He, he worked in that capacity very greatly, uh, acting as the spokesman for, for, to tell you the truth, our bugaboos of what we thought Muslims were. But by killing him, we now have an opportunity to come out and explain to the Muslim world, look, this is what their ideology really was. And when I explain it to Muslims in, in lectures or, or briefings, they're horrified. I mean, Al-Qaeda to them is, is truly the fourth cult. Uh, there have been three other cults in Islam, but Al-Qaeda is truly a cult within the Muslim world. They don't believe they're Muslims at all. I think certainly I would agree with you and many uh, commentators would agree with you that we have viewed uh, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, as a cult. But we, we receive uh, over here, in other words, outside the Middle East, uh, we hear that there's a widespread Arab belief in what is called the narrative, and that is something that's been promoted by uh, bin Laden and his followers, namely uh, promoting the idea that the West is out to get them, uh, that it's all about oil, it's all about control, occupying their countries and controlling the sources of oil. And that narrative is said to have widespread belief among, among the Arab population at large. Well, if you consider Al-Qaeda over the last 20 years as a, as a medium mouthpiece for those who are dissenting, those who don't feel that they have a voice within this very small sliver, because like I said, the people who look into Al-Qaeda see it in one of two ways. Either they see that romantic notion of the jihadi, you know, going around and meeting that narrative, uh, you know, America is evil, the Jews are out to destroy the Muslim world. Uh, Islam is in danger and is in a, cor in a corrupt society and has been since the fall of Baghdad in the, four, you know, in the 13th century. This is the narrative that they ply. And, and this is one of the, my chief complaints in the book. For the last 10 years, this country has done nothing to stop that narrative. We have allowed al-Qaeda to run rampant and let these short videotapes Osama bin Laden put out or Zawahiri puts out dictate what we believe the Muslim world, but what the Muslim world thinks, even though 1.5 billion people out there have absolutely <clears throat> nothing to do with Al Qaeda, and by by not allowing that narrative to be stopped, we only viewed it. We can stop the narrative through kinetic methodology, which is uh, kill or capture or put bombs on target. Whereas the Muslim world was listening for what we were saying, apart from kill Al Qaeda, kill the terrorists. 
You know, there's a whole world of communications that we didn't have. State Department almost ignored it. When they did go out and try to make the message, it was through the, the moving of democracy. The Muslim world wanted to hear, you know, were we going to confront these people mm. on their terms? Were we going to actually recruit them? And when we did try to bring the Saudis into it, try to bring the Yemenis into it, it was always seen from a position of, you either do what we say, or we're not going to do business with you. But we never went to them and said, you know, Islam is really under attack here. Not, not democracy so much, because Al-Qaeda is a virulent virus. And it, at, until just recently, we've seen with the democracy movement in the Middle East, it was the, the dominant dissension form of communications. Uh, but I think we gave it a lot more play than it deserved. Let me ask you, Malcolm, let me go more directly to, uh, to at least one of the operational facets of the uh, hunting down of Osama bin Laden, and that was the source of the information. Uh, it's obviously considered an intelligence success, however the pieces of the puzzle have been put together. Uh, there has been uh, some, let's say, ambiguity in the media about whether the identification of his courier uh, in, in nickname and eventually in true name, did that, did that come from uh, the interrogations at Guantanamo or perhaps from somewhere else? However it came about, uh, the issue that's still under discussion in this country is the issue of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. Now, I know that you, uh, in addition to being an Arab speaker and familiar with that part of the world, personally were an instructor for the U.S. Navy program, the so-called Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, S-E-R-E, or a SEER program, and that as an instructor in that program, you personally experienced being waterboarded. And I would just ask you, I think our listeners would be very interested, number one, in your description of that experience, and two, given your professional experience, how you come out in terms of whether we should use such interrogation techniques or not. Well, that, that's an excellent question. That's a mouthful. Question. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Be sure to remind me of the other parts. Um, it's an excellent question. First, I just want to let the, the listeners of this podcast understand some things because uh, I'm constantly asked about this. Um, uh, I came into this, this world out of my usual beat of uh, counterterrorism, anti-terrorism, and counterinsurgency uh, because of an article that I wrote in Small Wars Journal, which is, as many of you might know, it's the Pentagon's sort of mega think tank uh, on the internet where there's just some brilliant scholarship there. Why they have me on board, I don't know. But I, I, I managed to write at least one good article, uh, and it's still the most widely read thing there. It was an article called Waterboarding is Torture, period. And I wrote that article, uh, and it's interesting because I was on my way to Sri Lanka to, to, uh, to uh, look at their counterinsurgency and counterterrorism effort, and I, I was on this airplane and I heard this comment uh, by um, Joe Scarborough of Daily Joe on, on MSNBC. And he said, waterboarding is nothing more than a fraternity prank. Well, I had been, in, been involved in some fraternity pranks before. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was a Navy chief at the time. So I'd been through chief's initiation, the old school kind. And I knew what a prank was, and I knew what waterboarding was. And I, I was an instructor at the U.S. Navy 
survival evasion resistance and escape school at NAS North Island, which is on, on Coronado Island. Uh, and we do have a facility elsewhere. Um, but anything that I'm going to tell you today is not classified. I can only give you the parameters of what I said in my congressional testimony as I was called before the uh, House uh, Judiciary Committee and asked to testify specifically on waterboarding and the effects of waterboarding on myself in my waterboarding. So uh, I divulge no classified information. Um, that said, waterboarding, and, and I want everyone who hears this to be very, very clear, there is no debate. A debate has been created, but there is no debate. Waterboarding is a torture. Waterboarding is technically not what you see on YouTube. Uh, there's only been one depiction that I've seen on, YouTube, on, on the internet at all that is even slightly remotely accurate. And that's the one that uh, I believe Amnesty International did. Uh, that's a slow motion sort of waterboarding, and they did it with a performance uh, artist. And they asked me later on what I thought of it. And it was done by an SAS soldier uh, who had read the procedures, used the CIA's methodology, and did a pretty convincing waterboard. Um, but all the others, you know, people being held down on the street and raggling their face and all that stuff, that's not. That's what we call field expedient. That's the way it was done in Vietnam from that famous photograph. It is not the method that the CIA used. It is not the method that is used in the SEER schools. Uh, ours are highly controlled procedures, which for the student are, are done as a matter of safety. But the waterboarding that, was, that is done at the SEER school is not torture. What it is, it's what we call stress inoculation. And you're going to say, what is the difference between stress inoculation and torture? Well, there's a world of difference. First, it's that we are running a controlled environment where the student knows where he is. You're not going to forget that you're in the, you know, the mountains of California. The people that they are meeting are not meeting these students with the intent to coerce. Everything that is done at a survival school is done to, to have the student meet a certain objective. Those objectives include also showing the student that the enemy has the capacity to take you past your utmost ability to resist. And it doesn't have to involve waterboarding. There, there are a myriad of other ways that an enemy can do it, you know. Uh, you know, some electrical, some mechanical, some physical. Um, but we are required to show that to certain, a certain group of students. The number of people who are waterboarded is usually intensely low. Not everyone is waterboarded. Maybe one out of every 30 uh, students who go through the program. And a lot of people say, I was just asked on television the other night, well, what about the SEALs? Don't all SEALs get waterboarded? Absolutely not. Uh, now, recall that I hadn't been there in 10 years. Uh, however, waterboarding did stop soon after I, I, I went through, principally because of the controversy surrounding uh, surrounding the, the use of the waterboard and the torture. So not all SEALs get this. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we would sort of deny anybody who seemed to be hot to get onto the waterboard. Um, but that said, the device as we used it, the waterboarding platform, was an exact replica of the platform used by the North Vietnamese and an near identical replica of the one at, at Tool Sling, uh, Sling Tool Prison in Nam Penh, Cambodia. Now, I had visited that prison before I was a SEER instructor, when I got my orders to go to SEER 
and I was the first uh, intelligence staffer ever to be assigned at that Sears school. Uh, I went to Cambodia on my leave, and while I was there, I got to visit some of the prison camps, and because I was ex-military, a lot of the Cambodians wanted to talk to me, and they showed me some of the neat things. The only difference between that board and the board that we had was we used leather tie-downs, and they used metal shackles. That's it. Um, they, you know, we may have used another pouring device. They used a flower sprinkler, which, by the way, is more effective if you want to induce, you know, water flow into the sinuses of a, uh, of a victim. Now, that said, everything at the Sears School, every lesson we teach at the Sears School is, is written in the blood of U.S. service members. Everything that we do is, has been documented, notated, and referenced to an act uh, or an atrocity that has com been committed against a U.S. prisoner of war. We do nothing in there that was not actually done to U.S. service members at some point in the 200-year history of the United States. And we know we have the entire library of all the horrible things that are done to service members. Our job is to give those service members who are high risk of capture the, the ability to resist enemies, in, uh, ability to, uh, how do I put it, make you comply, to get you into a, a, an environment of constant compliance. Because constant compliance means that your resistance is breaking down and that means that you need to be shored up. So we gave students tools. Um, a person who was put onto the water board in our school, and like I said, it's very rare, it was not common, was set as a demonstrator for the other students that the enemy had a capacity to make you uh, move beyond your ability to resist. Now, when I got <laughs> waterboarded, I had the unfortunate pleasure of being the senior enlisted. And, and a, an intelligence person, someone from the intelligence community, and even worse, a brand new SEER instructor. So everyone at SEER goes through the waterboard so that they know exactly what they're doing and what it feels like. Um, so as a prospective instructor, I was required to go through that procedure. And believe me, you, there is, I've heard people say, well, it gives you the simulation that you're drowning. Well, in fact, it is not a simulation. It is a controlled drowning in which the amount the rate and flow of water is up to the interrogation team and the medical personnel uh, and that's the difference between what an enemy does what an enemy does is they take that system and they use it in a coercive fashion it is meant to cause pain suffering psychological damage and it is intended to get you into a state of absolute compliance or it is designed as a punishment for a lack of compliance. I feel very proud and, and honored to have been a, a member of the SEER school. Uh, as a matter of fact, in my Senate testimony, uh, House testimony, I, I encourage tripling the SEER school's budget because now we have many countries that feel waterboarding is the way to go. You know, the United States has given us permission, but John McCain yesterday came out and made a brilliant speech on the floor of the Senate uh, where he personally endorsed my point of view <laughs> and has uh, found out that tor torture and the interrogation routine from the early 2000s had absolutely nothing to do with getting bin Laden. It was just the honorable day-to-day, -day, I should say brute, brute force, as we say in the, uh, the, the crypty field, uh, intelligence analysis. I touched on the fact in, in my introduction, you personally were an interrogator. Uh, and you have, in addition to the fact that you have Arabic, 
uh, and so you've been professionally involved in trying to, uh, uh, sh shall we say, develop int useful information, right. information well, of use to intelligence in the interrogation process. Would, where do you come out in this whole issue of should the United States engage in or not engage in these so-called enhanced interrogations? And I realize that's a bit of a loaded phrase, but let right. you and I take it to include waterboarding. Okay. Well, let me clarify one thing. Um, I wasn't a trained interrogator. I was a tactical interrogator in uh, two different wars, uh, which meant that I was the only person who had the capacity to uh, interview uh, uh, and do field interrogations, which is the first interrogation you're going to go through. There are uh, three stages of interrogation. Uh, there's the uh, field interrogation where you have to get basic information that's expendable uh, or, or, or perishable immediately. Then you're going to get passed on to a rear area where you're going to be interrogated by someone who may not speak the language, but who might be more skilled. Then, if you're very valuable, you go on to a, be a high-value target interrogation, which you're going to meet some of the best interrogators in the world. So, uh, but with that, it, we all, and we have found over the last 10 years, all three levels of interrogator use these techniques, these enhanced interrogation techniques. And unfortunately, the Army is actually investigating 109 field interrogations as homicides. That's people who were, got these guys, brought them to the immediate front area, forward edge of the battle area. Instead of safeguarding and speeding them off the battlefield, they ended up dead. So my position on enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, and, and certainly being involved in this debate over the last five years, is that they don't work. Uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques don't work for this reason. They were not part of the interrogation process pre-9-11. We have been capturing and interrogating terrorist suspects for years and getting convictions of them for years prior to this. The EITs are nothing but SEER techniques we had been using at SEER school and had been templated and taken away from SEER and put into another agency to be used by our interrogators as tools to break prisoners, what they call breaking prisoners, because there's no real breaking, and getting prisoners to comply. Now, you recall I said a little earlier that every one of these techniques was written in blood. So, which means that this technique, let's say you're going to use, I'm not talking about the silly ones like the attention slap, which is just a slap, but if you attention slap somebody 55 times in succession, that's a beating. Okay, you're, you're moving their brain within the cranium. It's doing two or three impacts back and forth against the inside. It can get brain contusion. And now the prisoner may be so dopey he's not in a position to comply. You've now abused that prisoner to the point where he's no good to us. Or we may have to give him five or six months to recover. And now he starts building up his resistance. So in taking these techniques and transforming them from the deaths of American service members who died at the hands of these techniques, whether it was the Nazis, whether it was in the French-Indian Wars, we have some examples of that at art school, uh, whether it was from the Civil War in Andersonville Prison, all of these techniques were, were the best of them or the most coercive of them uh, that were short of death and torture, or short of, not short of torture, tor short of waterboarding, were also brought into that, that list. And again, they were abusive, they were coercive. They were designed to create a physical violence to get stress and duress, to coerce a prisoner to be cooperative. Okay. And none of them met, none of them 
were successful. What they were was they were they created an atmosphere, a, a environment of sanctioned torture, which has stained us. So EITs out the window, awesome, because they should never have been in the room, because they were our enemies' techniques. But let me ask you as a final question: um, Do you have any sense of uh, of what information of what, that you can share with us? Uh, that was used to eventually run him to ground? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I don't. I don't have any specific intelligence. Now, the framework of the information is very clear. Look, what happened in this circumstance is very simple. It has nothing, there's nothing, it's almost nothing spooky about it to a certain extent. We created a multi-dimensional intelligence collection system around whoever we determined was a member of the Al-Qaeda organization. And using our allies and third-party nations like Pakistan and, and uh, England, uh, Germany, France, people who were running agents, people who were at resources and sources, uh, our, own our own field interrogations, which were done over the last five years that were non-coercive. Uh, remember, it was the Bush administration that stopped waterboarding. Uh, all of these things created an environment where once we got a name, we could put an immense quantity of sensors, personnel, and resources in a box. You know, some call it a bubble, but I call it a nodal box. And we determined that that individual was a node. And as those of us in the intelligence community know, nodal analysis is how we figure out uh, what a person does and how they live. Uh, and once you have that, you can see all of their connections. Is there a connection, a financial node, and a weapons transshipment node, or is it a command and control node? And this guy's behaviors obviously bought his attention. We probably thought, okay, well, now we're going to follow this guy up into Waziristan, and we're going to find out the cave bin Laden's in, and then suddenly that whole box of surveillance starts moving to the east and goes to Abbottabad where he buys land. Okay, he buys land. Then he builds a house. Okay, he builds a house. You know, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the uh, intelligence analysts start looking at the windows and the walls of the house, and they go, whoa, he's building a little mini reverse prison with satellite, but no internet, no television. Or, no, there's television, but no internet, no telephone. That's unusual, which means he wants to stay, he wants to stay off the grid. And then the area of Abbottabad, which we know is, was tradecraft of al-Qaeda, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and, um, and, um, and another member of al-Qaeda were both caught within hundreds of, of meters of major military bases. So the, all of that tradecraft all was, was identified, and they realized this guy is, is moving back and forth and is you know, either the tongue of bin Laden or certainly the, uh, the, mouth be, you know, the, uh, the mind of bin Laden on a flash memory. And so when he would get out, he would start communicating, and other sensors managed that. And so we got him using hardcore, raw brutal intelligence. And I think that it's brilliant. This is the way it should be done. You know, the people that got hurt are the ones who deserve to get hurt. None of our guys got hit and it gave raw, hot, solid intelligence for the direct action team to come fly in there and do what they do best. Well, you've painted a very vivid picture of, intel of intelligence analysis at its best. Uh, you use the word brutal, meaning there were lots and lots of little pieces lots and lots. with names that are very hard to manipulate. Many people using aliases, and I think, uh, as you point out, uh, it was brutal, but it ended up in success. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much again for being with us today. 
uh, very much appreciate your, your insights, your comments, and uh, very much look forward to talking to hearing from you again here at the museum and talking to you again uh, as these developments continue out in your area. So be careful out there. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you guys take it easy back in the United States. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.